Are you bored with Christianity? It's kind of a weird question for a pastor to ask. But are you bored with your faith? Do you sometimes wonder what it might look like if you were to choose a new religion? Or maybe you're just tired of God altogether and you feel like you need a break. Would you have come to church today if you knew that just by showing up, there was a better than decent chance that you would be imprisoned? Have you ever been mocked for your faith and been tempted to quietly distance yourself from identifying with Jesus? Do you sometimes think that because you said the sinner's prayer, because you were baptized, because of all of that, it really doesn't matter what you do with your life because you've got that celestial get-out-of-jail-free card now. These aren't just questions for modern Christians. Judging from the exhortations that we're going to be looking at here in the book of Hebrews, the Christians to whom this letter was originally sent also faced issues just like these. Now, strangely, however, we don't know much else about this book or about the audience to whom the letter was written or the author or the time period in which it was written. I I, I even hesitate sometimes about calling it a letter because it's so unlike, say, the letter to the Ephesians or the letter to Titus or 1 John. Instead, a lot of people think that it might be actually a transcribed sermon with some greetings added at the end sent to Christians potentially in Rome. The book is shrouded in mystery, but there are some educated guesses about this book that many scholars agree on. They think that it was a letter that was sent to Jews in a large Gentile city who had recently become Christians. So these aren't folks like we read about in the Gospels who are in Israel itself. Instead, these are Greek-speaking Jews raised within the Greco-Roman culture who had converted to Christianity. They think that they might be in Rome because at the end of the book, whoever it is that wrote the book says that those from Italy send them greetings. So it's as if people from their church, from Italy, came and were with him and they're sending greetings back to their home church. Whoever these people are, they're in danger. They're in danger of turning away from Jesus. They're in danger of returning to their roots of Judaism or maybe giving up on the Jewish God altogether and instead embracing one of the mystery religions that was very popular in that culture. We don't know who wrote, who wrote it. The early church really wrestled with this question. Um, many people thought Paul wrote it. But that was such a big question that if you notice in your Bibles, it's at the end of Paul's list of epistles because they weren't confident that Paul wrote it. John Calvin said it's obvious that Paul didn't write it. Martin Luther was one of the very first people to say that perhaps Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews, and that seems to be a, a, a consensus among evangelical scholars today. You remember who Apollos was, of course. He was that eloquent preacher who was born in Alexandria, a center of Hellenistic Judaism. 
who had been discipled by Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila. Whoever the author was, we know that he knows Timothy because he mentions him by name at the end of the book. And we also know that he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples because he admits in Hebrews chapter 2 that he first heard about Jesus from those who had witnessed Jesus firsthand. We think that the letter was probably written prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, so prior to 70 AD. And the reason that we think that is because one of the main arguments of the book is that Jesus is better than the old covenant laws and sacrifices. And so if the temple had been destroyed by the time that this letter was written, well, that would have been a wonderful thing to point to as proof, right? An illustration of that point that the author is trying to make. So let me summarize what we know. Someone, somewhere, wrote to somebody else at some point. There's lots of questions. But the message is clear. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Whatever hardship you're facing, whatever is enticing you to follow after it instead of Jesus, don't turn back. Jesus is better. That's a reminder that I need to hear. I need to hear that from pastors and friends. I need to hear that from older men and women in the faith to encourage me to keep following Jesus. I need to hear stories of Jesus' faithfulness to other people so that I can be strengthened in my own perseverance, in my own pilgrimage. I need to constantly remind myself that Jesus is better. He's better than the sins that so easily distract me and entangle me. He's better than the other saviors who promise me life. He's better than the world that tries to tell me it's all a cosmic joke and it's just not worth it. He's better than my own flesh that doesn't want to sacrifice the way that Jesus says we must. See, here's my problem. If my heart is convinced that I am better off with someone or something other than Jesus, then I need to come back. But the only way that I can come back to Jesus is by being shown how Jesus is better than this other thing that I'm chasing after. Now, this entire book unpacks this theme, Jesus is better. But this morning, we're going to look particularly at the first four verses, and I want to show you six ways that Jesus is better. First, look at verse 2. Jesus is better because he is the heir of all things. Have you ever seen a family squabble over an inheritance? Ooh, it's ugly. Someone gets cut out of the will. Someone is fighting the division of assets. It's never pretty. There are no winners in that situation. But the author tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. And he's pulling from Psalm 2 when he tells us this. And what that means is that the entire created world belongs to Jesus. 
And if you belong to Jesus by faith, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that you are a joint heir with Jesus, a co-heir with Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is also in verse 2, Jesus is better because he is the creator of all things. I wonder, do you think that there's something in the world that's better than Jesus? Is there a shiny object that has captured your attention? Friends, Jesus has made everything. Jesus is the creator of all there is. Nothing can be greater than its creator. This also means that if you want to understand your purpose, if you're questioning how the world works, if you're wondering where you're going in life, well, you need to turn and go back to the Creator. You need to go back and understand His design for your life, His design for the world. Jesus is better because He's the Creator of all things. Third, look at verse 3. Jesus is better because He is the exact He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Jesus is everything that God is. One old Archbishop of Canterbury once said, back when you could trust what the Archbishop of Canterbury once said. He said, there is in God no unchrist-likeness at all. Let me say that again. It's kind of a British Yoda way of speaking here. There is in God no unchrist-likeness at all. Friends, that's a beautiful way of saying that Jesus exactly represents to us what God is like because he is God in the flesh. Fourth, also in verse 3, Jesus is better because he sustains all things. Friends, he didn't just create the world and spin it out to exist on its own with certain laws determining the nature of the universe. He actively ensures that you and me and every molecule of the cosmos reaches its intended end. Not even sin can stop him. He will turn everything that we do to try to prevent him toward our good. He will use our sinful choices and actions, and he will twist that back so that everything fulfills his will. Fifth, the fifth reason that Jesus is better, it's at the end of verse 3. Jesus is better because he sits down. That's kind of an odd thing to say, but what we're hearing here is actually a comparison to the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests never finish their job. They're, They're like modern mothers, you know, constantly running from one thing to the next, never actually able to sit down. They never sat down. They were always offering sacrifices, first for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. Then they'd have to start it all over again at the end of the day. And then the next day, they would start all over again. Jesus does his work, and then he sits down. He sits down because he's finished. The work of redemption is actually complete. There's nothing that is yet left to be done to ensure that you will be with him forever. 
6 and finally in verse 4, Jesus is better because he's superior to the angels. We're going to look more about this next week, but the angels, God's most majestic creatures, they are in subjection to Jesus. Nothing in all creation can compare to God's Son. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, why is this the message that our preacher, our author, is trying to get across to his original audience? What is it about this that they need to hear? What is it about this that you and I need to hear? Well, remember, the folks that first heard this message They were in danger. They were in danger of going back to Judaism after having converted to Christianity. But our author, our preacher, whoever this is, he is reminding them that God's previous way of communicating to his people has been eclipsed by Jesus. Look again at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's saying those were true. That was the way that God worked. They were effective. God used those forms of communication to build up his people. But something better has now occurred. A new day has dawned. So don't turn back, he urges them. Press forward into this new reality that Jesus brings with him because there's no going back on God. If you turn back, you're not going to find God in the Old Covenant. You're not going to find God in the types and in the shadows, in the laws, in the sacrifices. If you want to hear God's voice, you need to listen for it in his Son. Now, for you and me, the message is very similar. Are you flagging in the faith this morning? Are you tired? Is it even hard for you to pray? Do you feel like God has come up short in your life? Are you disappointed? Are you desperate? Are you looking over your shoulder, starting to wonder that Maybe there's another option. Maybe there's a better answer. Maybe somebody else can provide you that source of satisfaction that has somehow escaped you. The hope that eludes you. The fulfillment that you lack. Friends, right there. Right at that feeling. Right at that thought. Right at that fear. That's where the message of Hebrews meets you. To remind you that Jesus is better. There are times in all of our lives where we need to hear that message again. When the cares of this world threaten to eclipse our faith. When suffering crowds out joy and confidence. When Satan himself tempts us with something that he promises will finally and forever meet our deepest needs. God meets us in our places of desperation with a simple message. Jesus is better. Folks, start there. Start there. Resolve to listen to God. 
His final and complete revelation. The last thing He's saying to the world. He's holding up Jesus saying, Jesus is better. Start there. And then train your heart to look to Jesus. To look to Jesus when doubt raises its ugly head. To look to Jesus when temptation threatens to overwhelm you. To look to Jesus when apathy or when anger strike. Turn to Jesus because He is better. And He is at work for you in these last days, preparing you for the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are often looking anywhere and everywhere other than Jesus. So from this moment on, particularly as we study this book, Father, fix the greatness and the goodness and the beauty of Jesus in our minds so that we might be drawn to Him, to find in Him all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our satisfaction for this life and the life to come. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.